I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 18. And while you're turning there, again, welcome uh, to this service on our Lord's Day. And uh, thank you for your faithfulness to attend either here or wherever you tune in via our live stream. Uh, we thank you and are always appreciative uh, we've been studying our way through John's Gospel for over two years now, and uh, this morning is no different. We're working our way toward Easter, which is just a few weeks away, where we will, on Easter, land on chapter 20, where we'll study what took place on the morning of the third day, when Jesus arose from the dead. But this week, we pick up during the trial of Jesus, after his betrayal and arrest. And uh, I want to begin reading, let's see, in verse 28 of John's Gospel. And we'll read all the way down to verse 40, which will take us to the end of chapter 18. We'll begin chapter 19 next week. Um, but just to... Focus our attention where the context um, is situated. The last portion of the book of John actually is taking place over the course of a week's worth of time. Not years is the first half. So what we've been reading for months now is only just a couple of days. What we're reading for this month and the past few weeks are a few hours. So this is early, early in the morning on Friday... Look at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil... We would not have delivered him to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. John tells us here in verse 32, This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Verse 33, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose have I come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And then John tells us, now Barabbas was a robber. This is God's word. Let's ask for his help. Father in heaven, we thank you for another portion of Scripture another day to sit together and learn, another opportunity to have our eyes open to your truth. Oh Lord, another opportunity to sit at your feet. We ask that you give us what is necessary both to learn what it means in understanding and what it takes to be obedient in whatever way it implies that we must change. We thank you for your word. We thank you for each other. We thank you for this time together. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, as I've mentioned 
every now and then as we've been working our way through this that three other men write this same story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is the one we're reading. And of those four gospel writers, John is the only one that gives us such detail. In fact, you could add what Matthew, Mark, and Luke said and combine it all, and it's not as much as what John gives us about this part of the trial. So this is uh, unprecedented in Scripture, you could say. And we pick up in verse 28, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Last we read, he was being led from Caiaphas, or, or Annas rather, to Caiaphas. Now we're reading he's being led from Caiaphas to the governor's house. So actually, John has skipped over all that happens in between that we read in the other Gospels about the trial of the Sanhedrin, about having been hit in the face again, about a great deal of mistreatment. It's, it's been a long night and now it's early morning. John seems to skip most of these things only to spend a lot of attention with what happens here. The word they, if you look at verse 28, they led Jesus, that refers to the Jews. And they're leading him from the house of Caiaphas, part that John skips, to the governor's headquarters, which in the Greek is referred to as the praetorium. This was likely the Antonia Fortress. If you've been on a trip to Israel, you're likely to remember where that is. Though we can't be sure, this might have been from Herod's residence. Uh, we, we're missing some critical details, but really that matters not. Both would be inside the city walls and would have been the temporary residence of the governor during high priest or high feasts rather. When the city's population was swelled and the likelihood of trouble was a risk. Otherwise, Pilate would have been in his permanent residence in Caesarea, which was a nice residence built by Herod the Great, uh, who was known for his architectural genius. But whenever the high feasts were on the calendar, especially Passover, Pilate would need to be there in the capital city. Of Jerusalem. Now, on arrival, we see this uh, midway through verse 28. Uh, the Jewish rulers refused to enter that building, Pilate's residence. Now, why would they do so? Well, John tells us. Uh, so that they wouldn't be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So, there was this ceremonial cleanliness that was necessary to enter places like the temple. There were things that you could do which would make yourself unclean. Some of them were small infractions that by the time the sun would set and rise again, well, you'd be automatically clean. Some required a bath in the evening in order to be clean. Some things like touching a dead body or entering the house of a Gentile was a longer thing. And since Passover was a seven-day feast, we don't really have to be specific here as to what part you'd miss out on, but entering a, a Gentile's household would, would knock you out of any of this. So you've got these men refusing to go into the headquarters because it's Passover week and they don't want to miss any of the Passover feast. Um, what's interesting, though, and this is one of... John's uh, literary uses of irony, we see it all through his book, is that we're going to learn that these men who are so uh, given over as to the minute details of their own ritualistic cleanliness so as not to miss anything offered during Passover, over the next few hours are going to walk all over the judicial system in order to kill an otherwise innocent man. And then by the end of it, the trial that is, from their own lips, they will say, we have no king but Caesar, which is no less than blasphemy. They're not worried about that, but they're awful worried about standing in the wrong place, especially while each of them are watching and looking, 
so as they're not breaking any of their own rules. Pilate's introduced in verse 29. We just read verse 28. But when we get to verse 29, there's a little fanfare as to introducing who this man is. For people like us, we say, other than what we know of the stories around Easter, okay, who is this character? Now, the reason why nothing is said is because anyone who would have read what John had written when John wrote it would know exactly who this guy is. We don't, but they certainly did. Um, from biblical and extra-biblical sources, uh, historians have come to know Pilate, Pontius Pilate, as he's referred to, as a morally weak and unstable man, a dangerous man, if you happen to be a Jew. Um, and like so many of his sort that we see all over history, kind of hides his flaws behind the curtain of, of stubbornness, uh, sternness, brutality, violence, as if all those things are okay. He, he carries a, a big stick, but the history books would tell us later he was not that effective. Uh, some would say he was, but the way in which he did it carried quite a bit of expediency. Um, He's introduced here, and we know him from the pages of Scripture in settings like this from the other Gospels about the trial of Jesus. And there's one other place in Scripture, almost in passing, where Jesus is asked about a, an incident that happened where Pilate mingled the blood of those he'd killed with the sacrifices they were making in the temple. And that's about all we know about that situation. And that's not enough to match it up with some of the things that we know in extra-biblical history about this guy. Uh, there are at least three different situations that we can learn from Josephus or uh, this man named Philo of Alexandria. Those were contemporary historians. We've got their records. And we actually found in the 60s uh, what appears to have been a seat at the arena in Caesarea with his name inscribed on it. On the bottom, it appeared to be. So maybe we found the seat he used to sit in at the arena. He's a historical figure. And in that history, uh, the first situation was when uh, he was assigned his post in Palestine. When he entered uh, Israel on his way to Jerusalem, his army, his men, carried the standards with them. The Roman standards were... Much like you'd see on uh, one of these movies, uh, maybe Ben-Hur, when the Romans come in with their hats and they've got this stick with a pennant flag hanging off of it and perhaps an eagle on the top. That's the standard. It would go ahead of, of them everywhere they went. But it was a graven image. It was an abomination to the Hebrew people. So when he came in with this, it incited a riot. And around his house gathered basically a sit-in for five days. And he would threaten them along the way and finally summoned them all to the arena there where his men drew their swords. And these Jews laid themselves out straight and stretched their necks and throats and said, Come on, let's have it. We'll willingly die over this. So what does he do? He gets rid of the standards. He backs down. He can't have that on his record on his first few days in office. That was just the first. The second was when he brought these golden shields in, again with the likeness of the emperor, and hung them on Herod's palace. Another riot. And uh, this time, the sons of Herod petitioned the emperor in Rome and said, This guy's killing us. We're never going to have any peace if he keeps aggravating these people so the emperor Tiberius said take them down so that's kind of two strikes against the man and then there's a third situation where he invades the temple and robs the treasury to pay for an aqueduct which is just a way of him getting fresh water to where he lived and again another riot but this time he ordered his men to beat those that had gathered with clubs 
and lives were lost either by the clubbing or by horses trampling them. So this is the setting in which we see this man who's frustrated in this place where he's in charge of keeping the peace and the hatred of these people against his acts of atrocity and injustice. And that's how John introduces him, um, where he just says simply, So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Which was his way of starting another trial and another way of aggravating these Jews, the high priest, temple guards, Look at how it goes. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So when he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? He's formally opening a fresh uh, set of proceedings. Though it seems that the Jews had expected Pilate to just confirm their judgment and kind of rubber stamp this uh, execution order. It, it would seem that that's perhaps what he was in favor of because he's the one that authorized the arrest warrant. He's the one that gave them a detachment of men to go find him in the garden. But now he's wanting to start from scratch, it seems. Well, look at verse 31. And just look at their response to that before we look at 31. They answered, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. That's basically their way of saying, what do you think we're doing? That's why we're here, and you know it. We know it, you know it. But what Pilate is saying, well, there's more than you know. I'm going to make this as difficult as I possibly can. I'm going to try him myself. If you want a capital sentence, then I'm going to examine him. What he says in verse 31, if you don't like the way I'm doing this, you can do it yourselves. Look, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But if you want him judged by my law, I'm going to examine him. Let's make sure we understand whose law is most important here. You came to me, and I'm the one who can sign his death warrant. So I don't care about your law. I care about mine. The Jews said to him, which is their concession, he twists their arm. They have to say it. It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And then look at verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So basically, Pilate's thrown it back into their face. They're going to have to put up with him on his timetable and his examination because they're dependent on him. And some would say, well, you know, there is actually in the New Testament cases where the Hebrews did carry out an execution. They did stone Stephen. They did pick up stones to stone Jesus. That was kind of an off-the-record mob-type reaction. This is totally different. This is a high-profile man that just a week earlier had come into the city gates with a whole group of people shouting Hosanna. This is the high feast. There's a million people inside the city walls. This can't just be swept aside as some isolated occurrence of mob violence. This is all on the record. So... Roman law is what Pilate's worried about, and he's going to judge him. They're expecting a capital sentence. But let's not miss what happens in verse 32. This is John's editorial comment, and it has to do with Jesus, again, fulfilling what would happen. So this is another instance of Jesus being in complete control of the entire narrative up to this point and moving forward. Remember how he had said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is how he's going to die. He's telling us again before it happened. John writing this after it happened. So look at verse 33. So Pilate entered. And you might want to circle some of these words just to track your way through the scenes as John unfolds them. In verse 29, Pilate went outside. Well, why? Because the Hebrews wouldn't go inside. Well, now he's going back in. He's entering where he's going to examine Jesus while the others wait outside. And then by the time we finish, we're going to read that he goes back outside again 
to say he's found no fault in this guy. And then go back inside. There's like seven different waves of this narrative here. And they're all triggered by these inside, outside, inside, outside. Because they wouldn't go in. And he's not going to do this outside. So the exchange here in verse 33 and 34 Pilate entered his headquarters, again called Jesus, and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say this to you about me? Now what I think is is fantastic is another instance in John's Gospel where Jesus is asked a direct question that he basically refuses to answer the way it was asked and follows with a, with a question of his own. This happens all over the place and it makes for the most dramatic of, of exchanges between the Son of God and someone who's got much to learn. It's no different with Pilate here. Where Jesus is asked a question, he's not answering it. He's asking one of his own and the same rule applies here as the other places. Jesus isn't lacking for information. He knows what's going on. He knows what he knows and he knows what the other person knows. So when he's asking questions himself, it's not because he needs the information. He's asking the question for the benefit of the one who just asked the question. To make sure that he knows how he's framed that. Maybe even the motivation behind the question that he's asking. So that when Jesus answers... They're both on the same sheet of paper. Give you an example. Close to what's going on here with, with, with Pilate, though this example would be different because I, unlike our Lord, only have my side of the conversation in my brain. If I'm going to know more than that, I have to learn it from the other side of the conversation, right? Suppose the question is, boys... Where is my Allen wrench? I've been to the toolbox and it's missing. Did you mess with my stuff, yes or no? That's the question. Now, of my sons, one of them doesn't apply. He's too short to get to that drawer. And he doesn't care about what's inside it anyway. The other two, one's probably just because it's his nature. He's going to answer with a yes or a no, even if... There's things behind that yes or things behind that no that might have something to do with how I feel about that. Then the other son is going to start off not with a yes or a no, but why his yes or no is different than I might expect it to be. Maybe you've got boys and maybe you've got some that answer different ways, right? Well, Jesus is not answering this yes or no because to answer with a simple yes or no would be to misinform this man who has preconceived notions about what yes or no might actually mean. And the question Jesus follows with will uncover any mystery involving what either of those words mean. Jesus can't answer this question with a simple yes or no because, on the one hand, Pilate does not have enough information to interpret what Jesus would mean by either of those simple answers. Now, Jesus knows his end of the conversation on that hand. So we don't worry about that. So he clarifies his answer before he gives it with a probing question. And we already read that. What does he say? Basically, is this because you're curious and you want to know? Or is this because someone else has told you about this information and you're asking to verify what they have said about me? So Pilate's preconceived notions have to be confronted. If Pilate is asking of his own accord, think with me here on this. If this is the first part of Jesus' question, is this because you want to know? Then maybe it's a blank slate. And Jesus can inform him and carry him along and bring him to an understanding of who Jesus really is. So a simple answer would would not be good because we know and Jesus knows that he really is a king. Right. Now, if Pilate's working off what the Jews have said. 
And what the Jews have said is that Jesus intends to overthrow Rome, set himself up as a king, and is an actual threat to Rome. That's what they've told Pilate. If that's what Pilate thinks, then for Jesus to say yes would be wrong. Because that's not the type of king he is. And he has no interests in overthrowing Rome. That's not why he's here. So unless Jesus takes Pilate somewhere other than he is right there in his mind, both yes and no won't work. So what does he do? He asks him this question. And the answer to that question will give him a platform to go back and answer the first question. But before we do that, look at what happens in 35. How does Pilate respond? Well, angrily. Which is not uncommon for the way people respond to the questions Jesus asked them. They're usually probing questions. But what does he say? He says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Of course, we're entering into the thought process of, of Pilate here. But I think it's obvious enough. What Pilate is saying is, I'm not a Jew. I don't care about you or your people, or your law. That means nothing to me in the slightest. So, of course, yes, I'm working off what they told you. They brought you to me. They're the ones that handed you over. So if that's not the case, what have you done? And notice that Jesus doesn't answer that question. But Pilate has already played his hand. He's not asking this because he's interested. He's asking this because of what the Jews have told him. So what does Jesus do? Does he answer the question, what have you done? No. He goes back to the first question. The question about his kingship. Are you the king of the Jews? Look at verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world... My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. So twice he said his kingdom has nothing to do with this world. Now there's a lot going on here. But what do you think of that? Before we try to think of what Pilate would think. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is other Worldly would be probably our first thought. What is he talking about here? Now, it's kind of unfair if we're thinking through this and want to think from all angles because uh, we each have our preconceived notions. We're sitting in church, right? We read our Bibles. We know our Bible. We know what's going to happen. We know he's the king of kings and lord of lords, not just the king of the Jews and not in any political sense here. So when he says, my kingdom's not of this world, we know that because he didn't come from this world. But what do you think people who don't sit in church this morning would think about a statement like this? Is this when they check out? Oh, okay. So uh, this is where the trial before Pilate gets off track because what can you do with a guy who says he has a kingdom and it's not of this world? Is he crazy? No, most people associate otherworldly things with fantasy or fiction, right? I mean, whenever you hear something like that, you're, you're probably thinking, you know, other planet, what, what, like Alderaan or, you know, Asgard or Krypton or Narnia or Middle Earth. What is this make-believe time now? But for Pilate, that... You know, his culture actually gave us the stuff we made a lot of movies about. Clash of the Titans, that's what he believed in. Where the gods had all kinds of different places. There's one fellow that ruled over the ocean. One fellow that ruled the sky and played with lightning. And you know, they were all mad at each other at different times. And sometimes they'd take human wives and then the offspring would be half human, half God. So... This wouldn't sound bizarre to Pilate, but Jesus doesn't leave it there. Jesus elaborates in a way that Pilate would sure to be able to understand exactly what he's referring to. If 
That's the key word. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. That's what Rome was known for. Had the greatest army the world had ever seen. No one could withstand the fighting force known as Rome. You could either surrender or you'd be wiped out. And this guy would spent six years trying to control this group of people that were really hard to deal with because they didn't believe in Caesar as a god. They only served Jehovah. So he knew the struggle involved in fighting. And Jesus is telling him in those uncertain terms, that's not what my kingdom is about. My kingdom is not of this world's system of power and what it takes to hold on to it. If it were, my people would be fighting. And you know that the only one who took a shot, I told to put his sword back in his sheath, and then I fixed the man's ear he cut off. So what does Pilate do with this? Because up till now, it seems as if he's doing a good job of covering all the bases. But what he says at the end of verse 35 kind of betrays his dissatisfaction with what the Jews have said to begin with. What have you done? What have you really done? What is really the big deal? Because he he smells a rat here. Why all of a sudden are the people that hate us worried about a threat to Rome? Why are they doing us a favor by bringing this guy who they think is dangerous to us? He must be dangerous to them. What have you done? Jesus doesn't answer that question. He just tells him that this kingdom isn't, my kingdom isn't like yours. So I'm no threat to you. And my followers are no threat either. Verse 37. What does Pilate say? So you are a king. As if to take one more shot to make sure, to cover all the bases. You say you're a king. Jesus says, you say that I am a king. And really, from the Greek, that one's hard to interpret. A lot of people have said, maybe the way we should look at this is king is your word, which would be a disagreement. Most scholars agree this is an affirmation to say, you've said it. You've said it correctly. And then look at this. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That's a reference to his followers. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And that marks the conclusion of that exchange. Because in the next verse, he's going back outside. Let's pause there for a minute, though. Because this is the height of the dramatic effect to what we've been reading so far. If, if, if you're glued to this exchange between the world's representative, Rome is the biggest superpower, and then the Creator's own Son, God, who made all this, standing both in the same room, exchanging in this conversation. If anyone ever asked you, Tell me something. Why did Jesus come to earth? Why was Jesus born? Would you ever have thought to say, okay, turn to uh, John 18, verse 37? Because there's no more specific or explicit statement from the mouth of Jesus as to why he was born and as to why he's here. I would think most people would probably answer that question in a dozen different ways, all of which we find in Scripture. I mean, if I had started the, okay, somebody tell me, why did Jesus come to earth? Why was he born? You'd say maybe to die on the cross or to forgive our sins or maybe to be technical from another passage, to bind up the brokenhearted or another passage in John, to take away the sin of the world. But in this Exchange. He's very specific to Pilate. For this purpose, I was born. For this purpose, I came into the world. To do what? To bear witness to the truth. This is courtroom language. And he's standing in 
somewhat of an examination. There's, there's no jury, but he's using terminology that fits. He's a witness. He's bearing testimony. No, he's, he's the defendant. You, he's not, or not supposed to, testify for himself. Certainly not asked to. What we've got here, standing in front of the judgment seat of Pilate, using language of the courtroom, but not as the accused testifying on his own behalf. We've got Jesus in the cosmic case that God has brought against the world. He's testifying against the rule of a lie in favor of the truth. That is, for God and God's claim on the world. So just put your imagination cap on. Don't take the thinking cap off. I need them both. But could you imagine any grander of an overarching theme as to the struggle of humanity any more powerful than the battle of truth versus a lie? And where would the first lie have occurred? Garden of Eden. And if there's a scorecard being kept, the truth is in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth all the way through to creating man and woman, putting them in a garden. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then this serpent who enters the picture and says what? Did God really say you shouldn't do that? That's the first lie. And should the scorecards be examined... Do most people believe what God said or do most people believe the lie? Most people believe the lie. Almost, if you're looking at this with unbiased eyes, it looks like this wondrous story here is one big fat disaster up until this point. If anyone has access to information, if anyone has the scholars behind them, it should be... Greek culture with Rome. I mean, he's talking to the representative of the world here who's absolutely blind to what's going on and is, after he says, I find no fault in him, going to hand him over to a mob to put him on a cross and kill him. So what you've got is, is this cosmic battle from more than just is going on on this planet of truth versus a lie. And Jesus Christ is the star witness sent here for the purpose of bearing witness to the truth from way back in the beginning. That's what he's here to do. And if for once truth triumphed over the world, would there be anything left to solve in Washington or London or Geneva or anywhere else? Would we have any problems? No. So... Jesus has described his kingdom negatively. I'm not about posing any risk to Rome politically. It's not like the kingdoms of this world. But now to make sure Pilate is not misled, Jesus has described his kingdom positively. What it is, which is nothing less than the self-disclosure of God through his Son of the truth. That's what Jesus is here for. So if Jesus' kingdom is about his testimony to the truth, this is what Pilate has to work with, and his followers are characterized by their loyalty to his testimony rather than to violence against Rome, Pilate's going to have to recognize that Jesus is a victim of the Sanhedrin's plot. That's the reason he's going to go outside and say, "Uh, case dismissed. I don't find anything that sticks to this man Anywhere near what you say he's responsible for. He abruptly ends the interrogation with this cynical question, what is truth? We can talk about that more in a moment. But look at the remainder of of the verse there. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So it seems that Pilate understood Jesus well enough to grasp that his formal yes, 
I am a king really means no, I'm not a king in any political sense that might pose a risk to the empire. That's the reason he says I find no guilt in him. And if he'd been a man of integrity, that should have been the end of the whole thing. But next week we're going to learn that there's more to the story. So verse 39 gives us a little more of John's classic literary use of irony. Pilate says to them, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. We don't know a whole lot about Barabbas. Basically, just the word there in the Greek. For the most part, it describes something on the level of an insurrectionist. This would be the thing Pilate would be worried about. This would be a man who committed murder and thievery in an attempt to overthrow the system of Rome. So whatever Jesus is not, Barabbas is. And then this business about having a custom that he would release a prisoner. I don't have any extra biblical reference of this in history. Josephus, this Philo, fella from Alexandria, they don't write anything about that. Critics have said, well, it's probably just made up. Well, they say a lot of this stuff's made up. If you believe the testimony of John, John tells us that Pilate, and there is precedent that these men could veto certain decisions and that maybe as a an olive branch to try to keep these people happy on Passover he'll turn one of them loose seems like it's the people's choice but in this case uh, he kind of does the choosing for them you can choose as long as you choose one of two which one do you want your king or Barabbas And they shout Barabbas. We're told that these high priests, rulers, they went through the mob and told them what to say. But the irony is they're turning loose someone who was a threat to Rome. And they're condemning a man who was only said to have been a threat to Rome. And justice has not been given And we'll have more to say about that. But in conclusion, what do we do with all this? This is one of those situations where we could spend a week's worth of Sundays looking at the implications of what's said here, especially with Jesus describing his kingdom not being of this world and having been sent here on purpose as a witness to the truth. But a lot of these these sermons having to do with this passage have more to do with with Pilate. As if his question, what is truth, was his inquiry into the truth claims of Jesus. I don't share that belief. I don't see that at all. I don't see how a man wants to know about Jesus by saying what is truth, turning his back, walking out, saying, I find no fault in him. And then authorizing his death sentence moments later. He seemed to have joined not the ranks of who Jesus described as those who are in the truth hear my voice. I don't think he cares much about hearing Jesus' voice. He's certainly not of the truth. This man, if you gather all that we've got from the pages of Scripture and the other things from history... If there was one characteristic of this man that seems to fit better than the others, I think it would be his cynicism. And I think that what is truth is the height of it. Here's a man who has seen the inside of the machine known as the political entity known as the Empire of Rome. He spent years trying to keep peace in an impossible situation. He's learned that there's no, there's no right or wrong way. That there's just all these trade-offs. And wisdom is trying to figure out, okay, who, who, whose back do we scratch? Whose back do we beat? In order to just survive himself. 
to where he'd come to a place where his question, what is truth, actually is an indictment on the idea that such a thing even exists. And if it is, whose is it? And who can hold on to it? It's cynicism. It's, 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 it's a, a, a believing that people are self-served in the interest of their, their own situation. That, that's what motivates humanity. They serve themselves. And a, a, a disbelief in all human sincerity or integrity. It's a miserable place to live. Tradition is that this man took his life. That he was haunted by the blood he could never wash off his hands. Even though he was very clear and that's exactly what he was doing. Um, I've only come across cynicism in but so many people. But it seems to be a, a, a true disease once it, it gets a hold where you have no trust or faith in really anything. A lot of y'all know, I've mentioned this time or dozen, um, that my hobby is fishing. And I prefer to do that from my plastic boat, a kayak. And I prefer to do that in the ocean if I can do it. Before I moved down here to be with you all, the ocean was four hours plus away, so... My fishing hole before that was Smith Mountain Lake, which is actually a hole in the mountains. Beautiful water. It's a big, big lake. They have a nice nice population of big striped bass, up to 40 inches. That's what I was after. And to do this correctly, to fish like gentlemen, you use live bait, right? Preferably one big enough you could make a couple sandwiches out of it, but you... Drag him behind the boat hoping to catch something many times larger. So I joined some uh, some online forums to ask questions, try to learn this fishery. How do you do this? And I even attended a few of the uh, local fishing association meetings, met some people, asked more questions. But one afternoon, actually it was a morning, early, I bumped into a guy on the water that I knew of from his posts, uh, but we hadn't met yet. And uh, we talked for a few minutes, and he uh, gave me some bait that he'd caught earlier. Nice bait. I put him in my live well. And uh, by the time I shoved off from his boat, which was, I don't know, 10, 20 times the size of mine, um, I thanked him because he saved me some time and some work. And it was cold. Throwing a net in the cold gets you wet. It's awful. But that's the first thing you got to do. No bait, no fish. So I thanked him. And he looked at me and he said, Oh, don't worry about that. I plan on catching a big fish this afternoon. This is going to help me with that. I kind of looked at him like... What? And as we're going further apart, I've already shoved off, he says with a laugh, nothing's pure. We all do what we do because we've got something we want. And I said, I don't know if I believe that. And he starts laughing. He said, there's no such thing as kindness. There's no such thing as goodwill. There's no such thing as friendship or love or any of that. We're all in this for ourselves. Good luck. And I kind of pedaled off thinking about that for the rest of the day. You know, you just meet somebody, and this guy's accomplished as far as, I mean, he was the top of the, he was the one with the 40-inch fish. And I'm thinking, does that, is that how he thinks he gets this? By giving other people bait? Or sorry cases like he expects me to be? I don't know. And I'm thinking, is it... Could a guy who is that cynical believe that whoever invented karma wasn't in it for himself too? I don't know. What would it be like to be married to this guy? I sure hope he doesn't give his wife that speech when she says thank you for something. So later that day while I'm thinking, and 
eating my beanie weenies and dragging that bait he gave me, which I did catch a big fish out off of and wondered if mine was bigger than his. Maybe it backfired on him. I feel sorry for this guy. Because I had said I don't believe that, but didn't feel like I had the place to say, you couldn't be more wrong. There is something pure. It's not of this world. Came here to bear witness to the fact that God's everything but what you just said. Because on a level, I agree with the guy. I agree with Pilate. We've all got a heart deceitful above all things that's desperately wicked. It beats inside each of our chests. It lies to us. It's our own internal lawyer that makes sure that we're clean if everybody else is dirty. And we get what we want, when we want it, how we want it. And if left to ourselves, we'll destroy ourselves and each other in the process. If not for what Jesus came here to do for us. To bring us up and out of that. By being our sin payment. By doing exactly what we've been studying here. So when he says, I'm here to bear witness to the truth. I wonder if a guy like this knows the truth. I learned later he's a professor at a recognized university in Virginia. Molding young minds to believe that there's nothing pure. I believe in God's sovereignty that there's other men with knowledge that they teach. That there is absolutely something pure. Let's sing about him. Our great savior. I don't see how cynics could ever really have any true friends. Because they're always looking at the friend as wanting something of them. I mean what's the fun in that? We're going to sing about Jesus. Friend of sinners. The ones that betrayed him. That took the bite of forbidden fruit he told them not to. And every means of sin under the sun ever since. So I'm going to pray. Then we're going to sing. Then I'm going to come back and read us a passage of scripture. Then we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word. For the fact that there is something true. That we may find ourselves absolutely lost in a sea of lies. Such that we must fight against cynicism itself. To look at the person we walk past in a store and wonder what's their problem. Rather than do they know you. Lord thank you for the truth. Thank you for common grace that keeps us. Against our own inclinations from destroying one another. Thank you for goodness and kindness. Thank you for love. Lord thank you for being our great savior. The weeks to come Lord would you lay it out. Spread the table. Make it clear. Show us who you are. So that we can be of the truth. And hear your voice. Lord, we ask all this in your precious name. Amen.